Let's talk computational psychiatry. The diagnosis of mental illness, such as major depression, schizophrenia, or anxiety disorder is typically based on coarse groupings of symptoms. Uh, these symptoms, however, vary widely among uh, individuals, as do the brain circuits that cause them. Now, Yale researchers have developed a novel framework for computational psychiatry. Doc, how does that work and benefit psychiatrists in treating patients? Actually, we've been using specific subgroupings of symptoms to help us identify those who may already respond to certain types of treatment modalities. So take, for example, depression, which clinically is called major depression. Now, major depression can be subdivided into mild, moderate, or severe. Depending on certain features in mild, there may only be four symptoms out of a list of nine. And the sleep is more initial insomnia than terminal, meaning they have problems getting to sleep versus waking up very early and not being able to go back to sleep. Whereas in moderate, there are about five or more symptoms and there are more physical symptoms. And in severe, there may be suicidal risks and even psychosis. The treatment for mild can be just psychological treatments alone or medication alone. But for moderate, it has to be a combination. And for severe, we may consider electroconvulsive therapy. So with computational psychiatry. It actually explores neuroimaging, pharmacology, biophysical modeling, and new neural gene expression that maps out these variations in uh, individual symptoms to the circuits. Thus, it's becoming more targeted and informative. And these technologies can help clinicians to predict which drugs might help patients and even help spur development of new drugs tailored to individuals. So basically, you can handle a lot more data that's just coming in instead of just going through it individually and subjectively, I suppose, is it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the important thing is still to think about each patient unique from another. So even if they all fit into one category and say, you know, this is the best medication for them, they may still have differences, you know, in outcomes. Okay. Mm. First, it was Naomi Osaka, then recently U.S. gymnast Simone Biles at the Tokyo Olympics, pulling out of the competition to safeguard her mental health. The English Institute of Sport, a body that supports the training of top athletes, offered competitors, coaches, and staff sessions with sports psychologists to address the anxiety caused by the delay to the games and disrupted training patterns, as well as persistent uncertainty as to whether the event would even take place. So, Doc, are athletes of today exposed to more strain than athletes of the past? And if so, how? Mental health issues are definitely more prevalent in all population groups and not just in athletes. I mean, we know now that youth mental health issues is just as prevalent or even higher than adults. And there are many factors contributing to this. One factor is, of course, better mental health literacy. People know and understand it better. And then the willingness to discuss and talk about mental health when in the past it was a big taboo topic. You know, the prevalence rates in the past, according to some research, is apparently similar among athletes, but it just wasn't highlighted. And so some elite athletes like Simone Bales and uh, you know Naomi Osaka may have just faded into oblivion because they could not perform or just retired early. Some developed low immunity, developing other common medical conditions without actually highlighting the mental health impact on their health. So, you know, there are other factors, of course, specific to athletes, which is apart from the rest of the population, like sports-related injury, performance failure, Mm. being away from family and friends in training, and then overtraining. And of course, this pandemic has hit them really hard in terms of you know delay in the competitions and i thought it would help uh, them give them an extra year to prepare wouldn't it 
Well, the older you get, the harder it is to actually stay perhaps on course towards trying to get that medal. Right, right. Focus. So, okay, okay. Right. Yeah. So some of them, of course, are not you know young spring chicken, and you know they just <laughs> they're hoping you know to give that last final bout right. to achieve that goal. Why is it important then that athletes like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka reveal their mental health concerns? You know, sometimes we think of these athletes as superstars and maybe even superhuman. Just because they're physically superior doesn't really mean they are mentally different too. Because we hold them high in the pedestal, it is taboo sometimes to talk about their mental struggles. This can be even more evident when it's like an individual sport. Uh, but breaking these stereotypes takes courage. And that is exactly what Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka did. I mean, it, it is essential to highlight the needs in these vulnerable groups. Just because they are athletes doesn't mean they're born mentally strong you know it makes coaches team managers and competition organizers you know actually be aware and help support their athletes in fact when public figures open up and talk about their own mental health struggles it can help break down stigma it actually sparks important discussions and even inspires people general people to seek treatment as well let's talk therapy apps so when the covid-19 pandemic hit therapy apps were already starting to gain popularity amongst people struggling with issues ranging from stress to serious mental illness. Apps can provide many things that traditional therapies cannot. Uh, they're usually cheaper and they don't require a commute to an office. However, experts are concerned about the rapidly growing and unregulated market for these apps. So Doc, what are the concerns that experts are having um, that people would rather use an app and not pay for the services of a therapist? Or is there something else more disturbing? New technology actually does have the potential to help people recognize and manage symptoms of mental illness, perhaps without even regular mental health care. That's a huge benefit at a time when mental health care can be virtually unobtainable for those, you know, experiencing lockdowns or where services are scarce uh, or unaffordable. Uh, but the sprouting of all these apps brings questions on, you know, the authenticity and the accuracy of some of these. Uh, some may be just riding on the increased acceptance and need to better their coffers. Um, <clears throat> some studies suggest in the past that mental health apps might be as effective as in-person therapy. But recent studies suggest that these apps work best when combined with in-person therapy. Mm -hmm. The problem is there's no regulatory body, you know, actively vetting these apps. And users are left to navigate options that range from expert recommended to potentially harmful. In fact, according to the American Psychological Association, 10,000 to 20,000 mental health apps available. And the COVID-19 pandemic has just given the market an added boost. So what's your professional opinion then on the use of these um, M Health apps or this sort of cyber boom that many experts consider to be more of a wild west and unregulated. I love the term cyber boom also, by the way, because yeah. PSY <laughs> yeah. psychology, I love it. Yeah. 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 You know, you're right. That's the first time I'm hearing it, but it's interesting. Actually, in my practice, I do recommend some of these apps to patients. But how do you know which a, ones are good though? Doc? Yeah. So I do the research myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've even had some of them downloaded to use on my own to evaluate the effectiveness. And in my belief, they are complementary, meaning they mm -hmm. complement you know, then the other more mainstream treatment approaches like medication and therapy. Many of these apps actually focus on mental health resilience, meaning they're actually good at building good mental health to prevent or maybe, you know, even ward off relapses. Right. Uh, but as a tool for treatment, I don't think they actually stand there just yet compared to mainstream treatments. 
All right. So, so it's like kind of like go to school, and you need kind of need a teacher there. But if you just use an app, it's not like you're going to learn anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Okay, Doc. Let's uh, let's touch on school violence uh, after a traumatic event such as the recent murder of a 13-year-old student by his schoolmate in River Valley High School in Singapore. Experts urge parents, educators, and adults to be aware of how trauma may look like at this age group, and to know when to seek professional help, especially if changes in behavior persist. So, Doc, what lessons should Singapore take from nations like the US, for example, that have had a history of school violence in dealing with the mental health of the surviving or present students and their families? I think it's not just Singaporeans, but all developing countries need to take stock of the mental health of their youth. Like it or not, as discussed earlier, mental health issues among youth is on the rise, and it's the second most cause of death among teenagers is suicide, which we have seen a sharp spike in Malaysia during the months of the pandemic. Mm. So trauma and mental health are important issues among students and teenagers, and we need to focus more on this in schools and at home. This tragic event in the school can be highly traumatic, not only for the rest of the students, but also for the teachers and parents. Uh, everyone processes trauma differently. Mm. And our brain is like that supercomputer, which, you know, depending on what is stored in your system, will either help you to cope with the information or have a profound long-term impact. So this is more so if the youth teachers or parents don't have tools, resources, and support to work through, you know, what has just happened. Support for survivors can be a challenge in the presence of this pandemic um, because of the social interaction restrictions. Mm. But group and one-to-one sessions online may actually be the next best thing. Mm. So how concerned, though, should teachers and parents be in other schools about the possibility that this isn't an isolated case? I mean, what causes a teenager to snap like this? Well, I think all schools and parents should be concerned. I mean, teenagers are perhaps one of the groups that are affected most from the pandemic and the ensuing social restriction next to the elderly. They are already experiencing increased stress, you know, meeting expectations of parents, schools and their peers, as well as social media. But now they have less influence of their peer support and validation, all of which are essential for good self-esteem and development. Things that parents can do to help this, I mean, to help reduce this is actually, you know, one, maybe actively listening when your child wants to talk and letting your child know that they can talk about anything to you, even difficult topics. Spending time with your child, especially when you know that they're feeling stressed and, you know, maybe at that time doing things that makes them feel good, like, you know, cooking their favorite meal or letting them choose what movie to watch but encouraging physical exercise uh, or even doing it together with them. And I think something that people often neglect, ensuring adequate sleep, because this is one of the biggest causes of stress in teenagers. And your child, especially a teenager, needs about eight to 10 hours of sleep a night. So, you know, allowing them that gadget till about 12 or one and expecting them to wake up in time for class, I think it's a bit unrealistic. 